Welcome to today's reading of the Daily Nonpareil for Monday, January 22nd. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. Epley Airfield, airport to get $950 million makeover. Transformation of Epley Airfield should be completed by 2028. This is by Steve Lewer of the Omaha World Herald. Roomier boarding gates, larger baggage claim, one unified passenger concourse, more restaurants and shops, a giant glass domed entrance. All that is in the works, excuse me, all that is in the works at Epley Airfield as part of the airport's $950 million terminal modernization program announced Wednesday by the Omaha Airport Authority. The terminal at Nebraska's largest airport will expand to 646,000 square feet, 72% more than the current 375,000, while adding two new gates and a customs area for future international flights. We are transforming Epley Airfield, said Dave Roth, the airport authority's CEO. I don't think there's a square foot of the terminal we aren't touching. Work will start within a few weeks and be completed in 2028, although travelers will use some parts of the new terminal well before that. Roth said the expansion is driven by the rising number of passengers using Epley. In 2023, passenger traffic once again reached the 5 million mark, just slightly below the 2018 travel peak. The number of travelers dipped to just 2.1 million in 2020, the year travel was sharply curtailed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But the transformation won't be cheap. The cost has risen sharply from the last published estimate of $600 million in 2022. Ross said the earlier estimate actually dates to 2013, and the current price tag reflects inflation that has affected the building industry since then, including post-pandemic construction and labor costs. Once we got out of COVID, the real numbers started coming in, he said. The Omaha Airport Authority's Board of Directors approved the plans, including the higher costs, at a meeting Thursday, excuse me, at a meeting Tuesday morning. Ross said the airport expansion is funded by airport user fees, not taxes. The authority has authorized the sale of bonds, which will be paid back with funds from airport concessions, parking, passenger facility charges, the Transportation Security Administration, and the Federal Aviation Administration. The terminal project is the culmination of a 30-year plan to reconstruct Epley from one end to the other. From 1998 to 2018, the effort focused on the airfield itself. Three runways, taxiways, and the apron were rebuilt along with other infrastructure. Then the airport authority turned to the passenger side, Roth said. In 2019, the new North Parking Garage opened with four floors of public parking and two floors for rental cars. The South Garage also was reconfigured. In 2022, a lengthened and redesigned airport entrance road opened, connecting long-term parking and a cell phone lot directly to the main terminal. Last June, construction began on a two-year, $65 million project to cover the terminal drive with an all-weather canopy. And in November, workers began building a new $19 million power plant to generate electricity for airport buildings. Still, airport authorities consider all of that a prelude to the terminal modernization project, which has been discussed for years and was delayed for 18 months by the pandemic. We've been planning this a long time, Roth said. 
Construction will start with the new unified concourse linking the current A, South, and B, North concourses from mid-2024 to 2027. At the same time, the South concourse will be remodeled along with the northern and southern ends of the main terminal. Airline ticket counters will be moved to the second floor of the terminal where restaurants and concessions are now located. That work will also begin in the mid-2024 and stretch to late 2028. About a year from now, in early 2025, contractors will demolish the center part of the current terminal between the two sky bridges to the garages to build an airy new glass-top central pavilion nearly three stories high. The pavilion will be just behind the airport's glassy new main entrance. It will feature a large excuse me, it will feature a single large security checkpoint, replacing the smaller ones in the two existing concourses. Restaurants and concessions will be behind the security checkpoint where the central pavilion connects with the unified concourse. The pavilion is expected to open by early 2027. The last piece of the renovation will be the demolition and reconstruction of the north concourse, including a separate passageway for international passengers to a new customs area. Work will begin in early 2027 and continue until late 2028, completing four years of terminal reconstruction. Promoters of conventions and tourism in Omaha are elated about the airport improvements. We've been so excited about this for so long, said Deborah Ward, executive director of Visit Omaha, the area's convention and visitors bureau. Our airport is such a big selling point when we go after convention and event planners. That's because the airport is so close to downtown, including the CHI Health Center's convention facilities, just four miles from Epley. We cannot wait for this expansion to happen, Ward said. It adds to all the development that's happening. We have a brand new city to sell. Our next story, Nebraska Panel Wants More Data About New Racetracks. This is by Joe Decca, again, Omaha World Herald. Nebraska communities eager to have their own racetrack casinos will have to hold their horses a bit longer. Dissatisfied with a consultant's report on the statewide racing and gaming market, a state panel decided Friday it needs more data to comply with a state law before considering new license applications. Members of the Nebraska Racing and Gaming Commission voted 7 to, no, to, to 0 to form a committee to work with staff to obtain a supplemental study. Seven proposals have come forward so far for new racetrack casinos, in addition to the original six racetracks already eligible. The $48,000 report by the Innovation Group has been met with some praise, but also criticism from those who say it falls short of what state lawmakers wanted. The legislature directed the commission to have statewide market analyses of the current casino gaming and horse racing markets by January 1, 2025. Lawmakers also asked for a study of the socioeconomic impact of horse racing and casino gambling across the state. Lawmakers created a long, detailed laundry list of data they wanted studied before the commission could consider new applications. The December report addressed many of the items on that list, including providing detailed estimates of how proposed new racetrack casinos might financially impact the six original licensed racetrack casinos. 
It's clear, though, that gambling interests hurt by the report's conclusions are not happy with it, while those whose fortunes it aided are just fine with it. Several commissioners Friday pointed out what they considered missing elements, such as estimates for the future expansion of the horse racing industry, including the impact on agriculture. The report concluded that there was no need for additional horse racing tracks beyond the ones already licensed. It said there is more than sufficient capacity with the state's existing six racing licenses to allow for a tripling or quadrupling of racing in Nebraska. Voters in 2020 approved a ballot initiative linking casino development to racing licenses. That means that anyone who wants to build a casino in Nebraska, other than the six existing racing license holders, must win state approval for a racetrack. Tom Zitt, representing the Innovation Group, defended the report Friday. He said Nebraska's racetrack casinos are so new that it's difficult to do more than just provide a baseline of figures for future reference. Fauner Park in Grand Island is the state's only truly active racetrack, he said, and there's not much else to analyze. He said it will be years before all six original racetrack casinos are open and stabilized. But he said the findings in the report are based on reliable industry estimates. On the casino side, we stand by our numbers, he said. Commissioner Jeff Galen said the panel will obtain that obtain what lawmakers want. He said, however, that commissioners would rely on their own expertise and experience to make licensing decisions after that. I think there's sometimes a presumption that the study is the be-all and end-all, he said. The study's important, the legislature required it, and we're going to do it right. But we will also comply with our duties after that's back and review applications in the future accordingly. Commission Chairman Denny Lee expressed concern that it's simply too early to get any useful information to help guide decisions. For now, he said, the state has no permanent state-sanctioned casinos in operation. The three casinos that are operating are temporary casinos, he said. While the figures in the report are based on reasonable industry expectations, he said, I'm not sure that's an that there's enough data to really allow the commission to make a good judgment as to any expansion of gaming and racetracks other than our current facilities. The commission received letters this month from Nebraska Horsemen's Benevolent Protective Association President Gerald Woolison and War Horse Gaming Chief Executive Officer Lance Morgan calling for the report to be shelved and a new report ordered. I think it should be thrown out and you should start again said Lynn McNally, Chief Executive Officer of the Horsemen's Group, Friday. She said the report contained inaccuracies and the Innovation Group should have consulted the horsemen as a resource. Commissioners declined to give final approval for the transfer of the racing license from Fair Play Park in Hastings to Ogallala, citing the need for additional data. Representatives of a proposed Fremont racetrack casino were similarly, excuse me, similarly told they would have to wait for consideration. And now we're going to turn to the nation and world section. Election 2024 presidential race. DeSantis ends campaign. Governor endorses Trump, calls Haley warmed over corporatism. It's by Steve Peoples of the Associated Press out of Manchester, New Hampshire. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended his Republican presidential campaign Sunday just before the New Hampshire primary and endorsed Donald Trump, ending a White House bid that failed to meet expectations that he would emerge as a serious challenger to the former president. 
It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance, he said in a video posted on X, formerly known as Twitter. New Hampshire's first in the nation primary is Tuesday. DeSantis derided former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, long his closest rival for second place in the primary race, saying Republicans can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed-over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. The ambitious big state governor entered the 2024 presidential contest with major advantages in his quest to take on Trump, and early primary polls suggested DeSantis was in a strong position to do just that. He and his allies amassed a political fortune well in excess of $100 million. Such advantages did not survive the reality of presidential politics in 2024. From a high-profile announcement that was plagued by technical glitches to constant upheavals to his staff and campaign strategy, DeSantis struggled to find his footing in the primary. He lost the Iowa caucuses, which he had vowed to win, by 30 percentage points to Trump. And now DeSantis' political future is in question after suspending his presidential bid after just one voting contest. The 45-year-old is term-limited as Florida governor. DeSantis was widely expected to be a serious Trump challenger, acknowledging the threat Trump went after the Florida governor viciously in the months leading up to DeSantis's May announcement. Yet many of DeSantis's problems may have been his own doing. Fueled by his dominant Florida re-election in 2022, DeSantis sidestepped tradition by announcing his presidential campaign on X in a conversation on the social media site with CEO Elon Musk. The site failed repeatedly during the conversation, making it all but impossible to hear his opening remarks as a presidential candidate. In the subsequent weeks and months, DeSantis struggled to connect with voters on a personal level, excuse me, a personal level under the unforgiving bright lights of the presidential stage. He irked some New Hampshire Republican officials in his campaign's inaugural visit to New Hampshire by declining to take questions from voters, as is tradition in the state. And later, uncomfortable interactions with voters in other states were caught on camera as well. More serious financial challenges emerged over the summer. By the end of July, DeSantis had laid off nearly 40 employees in a move designed to cut roughly one-third of his campaign payroll. 27 killed at market. Gas port hit. Attack near Donsk also wounded 25, Russian officials report. This is out of the Associated Press. Kiev, Ukraine. Moscow installed officials said Ukrainian shelling killed at least 27 people and wounded 25 on Sunday at a market on the outskirts of Donsk, a Russian-occupied city in the eastern part of the country. Among the injured in the suburb of Tekstilshik, were two children, said Denis Pushlin, the local leader. Ukrainian officials in Kyiv did not comment on the incident, and the claims could not be independently verified by the Associated Press. Both sides have increasingly relied on longer-range attacks this winter amid largely unchanged positions on the 930-mile front line in the nearly two-year-old war. The artillery shells that hit the area were fired from the area of Kurakov and Krasnikov, I'm I saw I'm sorry. I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Krasnohorovica to the west, Pushlin said, adding that emergency services responded to the scene. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres strongly condemns all attacks against civilians and civilian infrastructure, 
including today's shelling of the city of Donsk in Ukraine, according to a U.N. spokesperson, adding that all such attacks are prohibited under international humanitarian law. Donetsk is one of four regions in Ukraine that Russia annexed illegally in 2022, months after Moscow launched its full-scale invasion. Russia's foreign minister, I'm sorry, Russia's foreign ministry also blamed Ukraine and described the strike as a terrorist attack. Also on Sunday, a fire broke out at a chemical transport terminal at Russia's Ust-Luga port following two explosions, regional officials said. Local media said the Baltic Sea port, about 100 miles southwest of St. Petersburg, was attacked by Ukrainian drones, causing a gas tank to explode. The blaze was at a site run by Russia's second-largest natural gas producer, Novatek. In a statement to Russian media outlet RBC, the company blamed the fire on an external influence, saying operations at the port were paused. Yuri Zapalitsky, the head of the Kingisepp district on the Gulf of Finland, where the port is located, said there were no casualties, but the area was on high alert. News outlet Fontanka reported the two drones had been detected flying toward St. Petersburg on Sunday morning, but were redirected toward the Kingisepp district. AP could not independently verify the reports. Russia's defense ministry did not report any drone activity in the Kingisepp area in its daily briefing. It said that four Ukrainian drones had been downed in Russia's Smolensk region and that two more were shot down in the Oryol and Tula regions. Russian officials previously confirmed a Ukrainian drone had been downed on the outskirts of St. Petersburg on Thursday. In fighting on the front line, Russia's defense ministry said Moscow's forces had taken control of the village of Krolmon in Ukraine's Kharkiv region. Ukrainian forces confirmed the settlement had been occupied, but described its capture as temporary. Palestinian death toll in Gaza surpasses 25,000. This is also from the AP out of Rafah, Gaza Strip. The Palestinian death toll from the war between Israel and Hamas has soared past 25,000, the health ministry in the Gaza Strip said Sunday, while Israel announced the death of another hostage and appeared far from achieving its goals of freeing more than 100 others and crushing the militant group. The war's deaths, destruction, and displacement are without precedent in the decades-old Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The war has divided Israelis, while the offensive threatens to ignite a wider conflict involving Iran-backed groups in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen that support the Palestinians. Furious with the Israeli government and demanding the release of remaining hostages, relatives and others set up a tent camp outside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's residence in Jerusalem and vowed to stay until a deal is reached. Netanyahu, is a defiant new, in a defiant new statement, said he stressed in his conversation Friday with U.S. President Joe Biden that he rejects Hamas's demands for a ceasefire. Israeli forces withdrawal and the release of Palestinians held by Israel in exchange for the remaining hostages. Netanyahu also rejects calls from U.S., its closest ally, for post-war plans that would include a path to Palestinian statehood. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called the refusal to accept a two-state solution unacceptable. The Middle East is a tinderbox. We must do all we can to prevent conflict igniting across the region, Gutierrez added. 
lawyer, Trump accusers won't go before jury. A lawyer for a writer who says Donald Trump sexually abused her in the 1990s and then defamed her while president in 2019 said Saturday that the infamous Access Hollywood tape and two women who accused Trump of abuse will not be put before the New York jury considering defamation damages. The revelation by attorney Roberta Kaplan, who represents advice columnist E. Jean Carroll, means that the Republican frontrunner in this year's presidential race could testify in Manhattan federal court as early as Monday, a day before the New Hampshire primary. The jury is considering whether Trump owes more to Carroll than the $5 million awarded to her last spring by another jury. Russia, North Korea planned further meetings. This is out of Seoul, South Korea. North Korea said Sunday that Russian President Vladimir Putin expressed his willingness to visit the North at an unspecified early date as the countries continue to align in the face of their separate, intensifying confrontations with the United States. The North Korean Foreign Ministry highlighted Putin's intent for a visit following North Korean Foreign, Prime Minister, Foreign Minister Cho Sun Hyu's meetings with Putin and Russia Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in Moscow last week. The ministry said in a statement published by state media that the two countries agreed to further strategic and tactical cooperation with Russia to establish a new multipolarized international order, a reference to their efforts to build a united front against Washington. And in some briefs here, immigration protest, tens of thousands of people marched Sunday in cities across France to call on President Emmanuel Macron not to sign into law tough new legislation on immigration that they say bears the footprint of the far right and betrays French values. Far right demonstration. A protest against the far right Sunday afternoon in the German city of Munich ended early due to safety concerns after about 100,000 people showed up, police said. Shooting plan. The Federal Bureau of Land Management announced Friday it is looking to reduce recreational target shooting within Arizona's Sonoran Desert National Monument. The agency's proposed resource management plan amendment would allow target shooting on 5,295 acres and ban it on 480,496 acres. Migrant Caravan A caravan of some 500 migrants that departed northern Honduras in hopes of reaching the United States dissolved Sunday after crossing the border into Guatemala, the Guatemalan Migration Institute reported. Kidnapping A Texas man pleaded guilty to kidnapping a 13-year-old girl who was rescued in Southern California when a passerby saw her hold up a Help Me sign in a parked car. Stephen Robert Sablin, 62, of Cleburne, Texas, admitted in a plea agreement that he sexually assaulted the victim while driving her from Texas to California. The girl was rescued July 9th. In Pennsylvania, three people died and three others were injured in an early morning fire at a home in east-central Pennsylvania on Sunday, authorities said. Officials in Lebanon County said crews were dispatched just after 1.30 a.m. to the home in North Londonbury Township near Palmyra. You're listening to the Daily Nonpareil on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. 
And now I'm going to turn to the sports section. And I'm going to see if I can find the what's on TV or radio. Well, I don't find that, but I'm going to give you the playoff scores and schedule for the uh, National Football League. In the AFC, Houston played Cleveland. Well, that's not correct. Hold on just a minute. Okay, here we go. Sorry about that. In the FC, Saturday's game, Baltimore beat Houston 34-10. San Francisco beat Green Bay 24-21. In Sunday's game, Kansas City Chiefs beat Buffalo Bills 27-24. And Detroit beat Tampa Bay 31-23. So on Sunday, next Sunday, January 28th, in the AFC, the Chiefs will play the Ravens at 2 p.m. on CBS. And in the NFC, the Detroit Lions will play the San Francisco 49ers at 5.30 p.m. on Fox. And we have Super Bowl 58 to look forward to on February 11th. They will play in Las Vegas at 5.30 p.m. on CBS. Around the league, here around the NFL, Falcons... Atlanta has interviewed a dozen candidates for its head coaching vacancy, adding Houston Texans offensive coordinator Bobby Slowick to the growing list. And the Browns, Cleveland interviewed former quarterback Ken Dorsey on Friday to lead the offense, according to an AP source. Dorsey was fired as Buffalo's OC in November. The Browns also planned to interview Houston quarterbacks coach Jared Johnson for the OC position. Titans... Tennessee interviewed David Shaw on Sunday for head coach. Shaw is the winningest coach in Stanford history. Okay, I think we will start with college basketball. Stanford's Vanderveer makes history out of Stanford, California. Tara Vanderveer became the all-time winningest coach in college basketball history Sunday, passing former Duke and Army coach Mike Krzyzewski with her 1,203rd career victory when number 8 Stanford beat Oregon State 65-56. At 70 years old and a head coach since age 24, Vanderveer celebrated on her team's home floor at Maples Pavilion with a couple dozen former players on hand to cheer the Hall of Fame coach on for yet another milestone in a decorated 45-year career filled with memorable accomplishments. This is a tremendous accomplishment for Tara Vanderveer, who is already one of the most accomplished coaches in the history of basketball, Krasuski said in a statement. Vanderveer improved to 1,203 to 267 overall and a 1,051 to 216 over 38 seasons at Stanford. That's her record. A 17-time Pac-12 Coach of the Year with five National Coach of the Year honors, Vanderveer has captured three NCAA titles with Stanford, 1990, 92, and 2021, and coached the 1996 U.S. Olympic team to a gold medal at the Atlanta Games during a year away from Stanford. Iowa's Clark knocked down by Ohio State fan. Caitlin Clark said she was okay after she was accidentally knocked down by a fan running out of the court after number two Iowa was upset by number 18 Ohio State on Sunday in Columbus, Ohio. The Hawkeye star was running off the court with her head down when a female fan 
trying to film the on-court celebration, banged into Clark. She fell to the floor under one of the baskets as personnel and teammates rushed to her aid. Now we've got some brief uh, scores here. Men's top 25. We had Tulane, 81. Number 10, Memphis, 79. Sean James scored a season-high 22 points, and Tulane handed the Tigers their second straight loss. The Green Wave outscored Memphis 22-13 to in the final nine minutes. James hit a pivotal corner three-pointer that put Tulane up 77-75 with two minutes, 22 seconds left. Number 14, Illinois, was 86, Rutgers 64. Justin Harmon scored 18 points, and Terrence Shannon Jr. added 16 in his return to lead Illinois over visiting Rutgers. In his first game back since the university was ordered Friday to lift his suspension, Shannon came off the bench and played 28 minutes for the Illini. He had four assists and made eight of ten shots from the free-throw line. Number 23, Florida Atlantic, was 112, UTSA 103 in overtime. John L. Davis had 34 points, including three free-throws to force overtime, and Florida Atlantic overcame a career-high 38 points by Jordan Ivy Curry to beat UTSA in San Antonio. And here are some, a few briefs around the NBA. Hawks Young out with concussion. Out of Atlanta, the Hawks guard Trey Young was diagnosed with a concussion after getting elbowed in the face during a loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers and will be out indefinitely, the team announced Sunday. Young left Saturday night's game with an eight minute forty-three with eight minutes forty-three seconds remaining after taking a charge from Cavaliers forward Isaac Okoro and accidentally getting elbowed. Young stayed on the court for a few minutes and walked back to the locker room with the Hawks tailing excuse me, with the Hawks trailing by 25 points. Young is averaging 26.9 points per game and is second in the league with 10.8 assists per game. As part of the league's concussion protocol, Young must show he is symptom-free before resuming basketball activities. There is no set timetable. The Kings Huerter gets renewed confidence. Sacramento Kings center Domantas Sabanis was answering a question about Ken Huerter's renewed sense of confidence after Tuesday's game in Phoenix when Herter walked by. It's great. It was exhausting cheering him up after every play, Savannah's quipped, bringing a smile to Herter's face. Herter's struggles over the first half of the season were well documented, but suddenly he looks like his old self as the Kings head into Monday's home game against his former team, the Atlanta Hawks. The 25-year-old guard has averaged 22.3 points, five rebounds, and three assists over his last three games, while shooting 62.5% from the field and 55.5% from beyond the arc. Well, in tennis, another Djokovic milestone, 58 slam quarterfinals. Out of Melbourne, Australia, achieving yet another record at the Australian Open put Novak Djokovic in a reflective mood, revealing how he thought things might change after he'd clinched that historic 24th major title. Djokovic played his best two sets in a while in a 6-0-6-0-6-3 demolition of Adrian Manorino on Sunday to reach the quarterfinals at a major for the 58th time, equaling Roger Federer's glam... I'm sorry, Grand Slam record. I thought maybe I would this year feel slightly more relaxed, for lack of a better term, or maybe less tension, less stress on practice sessions, matches, he said. But it's not. It is as it always was, very high intensity. 
In the quarterfinals, Djokovic will be playing number 12-ranked Taylor Fritz, who reached the last eight in Australia for the first time with a 7-6, 5-7, 6-3, win over 2023 runner-up Stefanos Tsitsipas. Fritz is 0-8 against Djokovic. Number four, Janik Sinner hasn't dropped a set en route to the quarterfinals with the Italian beating number 15, Karen Kakanov, on Sunday, nor have women's defending champion Arena Sabalenka and U.S. Open winner Coco Goff, who next faces Marta Kostyuk of Ukraine. Sinner will play a quarterfinal against Audrey Rublev after the number five seed rallied to beat number 10, Alex de Menar. 6-4, 6-7, 6-7, 6-3, and 6-0. Savalenka will next play 2021 French Open champion Barbora Krejcikova, who rallied for a 4-6, 6-3, 6-2 win that ended 16-year-old Mira Andriva's bid to become the youngest Australian Open quarterfinalist since Martina Hingis in 1997. In Monday's early matches, Diana Yastremska and Linda Noskova reached their first Grand Slam quarterfinals. Yastremska beat two-time champion Victoria Azarenka 7-6-6-4, while 18th-ranked Svitolina was trailing Linda Noskova 3-0 when Svitolina retired with a back injury. Now we'll go to golf. Dunlap Tour's first amateur champ since 91. Out of La Quinta, California. Nick Dunlap became the first amateur in 33 years to win on the PGA Tour, holding on for a one-shot victory over Christian Bezudenhout at the American Express on Sunday. Dunlap, the 20-year-old University of Alabama sophomore, and reigning U.S. amateur champion is the first amateur winner since Phil Mickelson at the Tucson Open in 1991. Playing in just his fourth tour event, he became only the seventh amateur winner since 1945 and the third since 1957. The only amateur in the 156-player field in the tournament, long known as the Bob Hope Desert Classic, Dunlap surged into a three-shot lead with a sizzling 60 in the third round. He lost that lead Sunday on the front nine on the stadium course at PGA West, but he played with the resilience of a seasoned veteran down the stretch, capped by his recovery from two errant shots on the 18th to finish with a six-foot par putt. Nothing like I've ever felt, Dunlap said. It was so cool to be out here and experience this. He ended up with a two-under 70 to finish at 29-under 259 and break the tournament scoring record as a 17-hole event. He's also the youngest winner in the event's history, and he became the youngest amateur to win on the tour since 1910. Dunlop got the celebration for one of the most impressive performances in recent golf history, but he doesn't get the $1.5 million first-place prize, which goes to Mazudenhout after the South Africans' final round, 65. Dunlap also doesn't get the 500 FedEx Cup points, but his rewards are still ample, starting with a two-year PGA Tour exemption through 2026. And let's go to hockey. NHL, Wings snap Bolts' five-game win streak. Out of Detroit, Daniel Sprong scored the go-ahead goal in the second period, 
and the Detroit Red Wings defeated Tampa Bay 2-1 on Sunday night, snapping the Lightning's five-game winning streak. Lucas Raymond also scored for Detroit, which is 7-1-1 over the last nine games. Alex Lyon made 29 saves, including 19 in the third period. The Red Wings were playing the first of five consecutive home games before the All-Star break. It's a very dangerous team. I think we played really well tonight. Maybe one of the more complete games we've played all season, Lyon said. Really difficult to come off a road trip emotionally and physically. The way they that we responded tonight was awesome. Victor Hedman scored for the Lightning, and Nikita Kucherov added an assist for his 76th point. He's one point behind Colorado's Nathan McKinnon for the league lead. Andre Vasilevsky made 33 saves. The Lightning didn't have any power plays until the third period. The Red Wings managed to kill off all three of them. In other games, the Islanders were three and the Stars two in overtime. Bo Horvat scored 41 seconds into overtime. Ilya Sorokin finished with 41 saves. And New York beat visiting Dallas to win new coach Patrick Roy's debut. Alexander Romanov and Hudson Fashing also scored. And Noah Dobson had two assists. Roy was hired on Saturday to replace Lane Lambert after the Islanders went 0-3-1 on a four-game road trip. The Wild 5, Hurricanes 2. Kirill Kaprizov scored three goals for his second career hat trick. Joel Erickson Eck had the tie-breaking goal in the third period and Minnesota beat host Carolina. Senators 5, Flyers 3. Tim Stultzel had a pair of goals, including an empty netter. Vladimir Terencico and Claude Giroux scored in the third period, and Ottawa rallied in Philadelphia. Rangers 5, Ducks 2. Artima Panarin scored the go-ahead goal on a power play with 5 minutes 37 seconds remaining, and New York rallied past host Anaheim. Adam Heinrich scored twice for the Ducks. Maples Leafs 3, Kraken 1. Austin Matthews and Nicholas Robertson scored early. Ilya Samsonov recorded 16 saves, and Toronto handed host Seattle its fourth loss in a row. And around the league, Pinto returns from 41-game suspension out of Philadelphia. Ottawa Senators center Shane Pinto returned to the ice on Sunday against the Philadelphia Flyers after sitting out the first 41 games because of a suspension from the NHL for activities related to sports wagering. Pinto, 23, had 20 goals and 15 assists in 82 games for the Senators last season. The league's investigation found no evidence that Pinto bet on NHL games and provided few details, and Pinto has not disclosed specifics in interviews. Pinto was the second center on the ice on Sunday, getting his first shift early in the first period. The Senators were looking forward to having Pinto back in the lineup. He'll bring a lot of energy, Senators interim coach Jacques Martin said early Sunday, but he's got to keep the game simple and try to adjust on the fly to the pace of the game. Dubé goes on leave for mental health out of Calgary, Alberta. Flames forward Dylan Dubé was granted an infinite, indefinite leave to attend to his mental health, the team announced Sunday. The 25-year-old from Golden, British Columbia, is under the care of professionals, the Flames said in a statement on X. Dubé was not in Calgary's lineup for Saturday's 3-1 loss to Edmonton. The 5'11", 
185-pound center was a second-round pick, 56th overall, of the Flames in the 2016 draft. He has three goals and four assists in 43 games. And stat of the day, Sam Gagner broke a tie with a goal early in the third period, and the Edmonton Oilers beat the Calgary Flames on Saturday to break Montreal's record for the longest winning streak by a Canadian team at 13. Okay, I'm going to go back to the NFL for an article here about the Chiefs survive in Buffalo. Kelsey scores twice. Bill's game-tying field goal goes wide right. Out of Orchard Park, New York. Travis Kelsey caught two touchdown passes from Patrick Mahomes, and the Kansas City Chiefs advanced to their sixth straight AFC Championship game with a 27-24 win over the Buffalo Bills on Sunday night. Isaiah Pacheco scored the go-ahead touchdown on a four-yard run 40 seconds into the fourth quarter in a game during which the teams traded leads five times. The Chiefs clinched the win by running out the clock after Buffalo's Tyler Bass was wide right on a 44-yard field goal attempt with one minute 43 seconds remaining. The defending Super Bowl champion Chiefs move on to Baltimore to face Lamar Jackson and the conference's top-seeded Ravens, who beat Houston 34-10 on Saturday. Kansas City is 0-1 in the playoffs against the Ravens, following a 30-7 loss in the 2010 wildcard round. Baltimore defeated Kansas City 36-35 in their most recent regular season matchup in Week 2 of the 2021 season. There's no weakness there, Mahomes said of the Ravens. It's going to take our best effort. Defense, offense, special teams, they do it all. It's always a great challenge, and that stadium's going to be rocking, so we're excited for the challenge. Buffalo and Kansas City traded unlikely turnovers, with the Bills failing to convert on a fake punt when Lamar, excuse me, when Demar Hamlin was stopped for two yards on a fourth and five at Buffalo's 32. The Chiefs then gave the ball right back two plays later when McCole Hardman lost a fumble into the end zone for a touchback. The game wasn't decided until the Bills' final drive stalled at the Chiefs' 26 when Allen threw a pair of incompletions leading to Bass's miss. It came a week after he had a field goal attempt blocked and also missed from 27 yards in a 31-17 win over Pittsburgh. I wish he wouldn't have been put in that situation, Allen said. You win as a team, you lose as a team. One play doesn't define a game. Kansas City has never lost in the divisional round since Mahomes took over as starter in 2018, and the Chiefs have now won five consecutive playoff games since a 27-24 overtime loss to Cincinnati in the AFC Championship game during the 2021 season. In other games, Lions 31, Buccaneers 23. Jared Goff threw two touchdown passes and host Detroit beat Tampa Bay, lifting the long-suffering franchise into the NFC Championship for the first time in 32 years and just the second time in franchise history. The Lions won two playoff games in a season for the first time since 1957. The last year, they won the NFL title. They will play at San Francisco, the NFC's top seed, next Sunday for a spot in the Super Bowl, a game that has never, a game they have never played in. Jamar Gibbs ran through a huge hole for a tie-breaking 31-yard touchdown early in the fourth quarter, and Goff made it to a two-TD lead when he connected with Amon. Ra St. Brown for a nine-yard score with six minutes, 22 seconds left. Baker Mayfield threw three touchdown passes for Tampa Bay, including a 16-yard toss to Mike Evans that got the Bucks within one score 
with 4 minutes 37 seconds left. Detroit couldn't run out the clock on offense, giving Tampa Bay one last chance, but Mayfield's pass over the middle was intercepted by linebacker Derek Barnes, the quarterback's second pick of the day. The Lions kneeled to run out the clock as their fans stood, screamed, and twirled white towels. Goff finished 30 of 43 for 287 yards and directed an efficient second-half offense for the Lions, who had long touchdown drives on three consecutive possessions. St. Brown had eight catches for 77 yards, and his touchdown catch capped a masterful 10-play, 89-yard drive. And one last sports article here is out of the NBA. Banchero scores 20 as Magic turned back cold shooting heat out of Orlando. With its season opening starting lineup back together for the first time in two and a half months, the Orlando Magic took their defense to another level Sunday night in a 105-87 victory over the Miami Heat. Paolo Banchero led five Orlando starters in double figures with 20 points, and the Magic held the Heat to a season-low point total. Bam Adebayo had 22 points and 11 rebounds for skidding Miami, which has lost three straight games. It felt good to have everyone back tonight, and it's good to see how effective our defense is when we have that unit in, said Markel Fultz, who had 12 points in the first start since November 9th. Jimmy Butler, who did not play in either of the Heat's victories over the Magic earlier this season, had 15 points. Tyler Harrow had added 12 points for Miami, which shot 37.5% and had 14 turnovers. I feel like we just get stagnant. The biggest thing for us right now is we are in a rough patch and we have to dig ourselves out of it, said Adebayo. Clippers 125, Nets 114. Kawhi Leonard scored 14 of his 21 points over the final five minutes and Los Angeles overcame an 18-point deficit in the fourth quarter to defeat visiting Brooklyn. The Clippers took their first lead on Leonard's basket with two minutes, 50 seconds remaining. They closed with a 22-0 run, capped by Leonard's three-pointer from the corner to win for the 10th time in 12 games. James Harden led Los Angeles with 24 points. Nuggets 113, Wizards 104. Nikola Jovic scored 42 points to go along with 12 rebounds and 8 assists, and Denver beat host Washington. Jokic was 15 of 20 from the field and made 12 of 14 free throws. Tyus Jones had 15 points and 13 assists for the Wizards, who have lost four straight. Celtics 116, Rockets 107. Chris Tapp's Porzingis scored 32 points, and Boston beat shorthanded Houston on the road. Porzingis was 11 of 20 from the field and 6 of 11 from three-point range. He added five blocks. Dylan Brooks led the Rockets with 25 points, hitting 5 of 15 from three. Suns 117, Pacers 110. Kevin Durant scored 40 points, Devin Booker had 26, and Phoenix beat visiting Indiana for its fifth straight victory. Bradley Beal added 25 points on 11 of 16 shooting. Buddy Heald led the Pacers with 18 points. Lakers 134, Trail Blazers 110. D'Angelo Russell scored 34 points, LeBron James added 28, and host Los Angeles routed Portland to get back to 500. Okay, I'm going to read some Today in History, today's highlight. On January 22, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court, in its Roe v. Wade decision, declared a nationwide constitutional right to abortion. On this date in 1901, 
Britain's Queen Victoria died at age 81 after a reign of 63 years. She was succeeded by her eldest son, Edward VII. In 1938, Thornton Wilder's play Our Town was performed publicly for the first time in Princeton, New Jersey. In 1944, during World War II, Allied forces began landing at Anzio, Italy. In 1947, America's first commercially licensed television station, West of the Mississippi, KTLA-TV, in Los Angeles, made its official debut. In 1953, the Arthur Miller drama The Crucible opened on Broadway. In 1995, Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy died at the Kennedy Compound at Hyannisport, Massachusetts, at age 104. In 1997, the Senate confirmed Adeline Madeleine Albright as the nation's first female Secretary of State. In 1998, Theodore Kaczynski pleaded guilty in Sacramento, California, to being the Unabomber responsible for three deaths and 29 injuries in return for a sentence of life in prison without parole. In 2006, Kobe Bryant scored 81 points, the second highest in NBA history, in the Los Angeles Lakers' 122-104 victory over the Toronto Raptors. In 2008, actor Heath Ledger, aged 28, was found dead of an accidental prescription overdose in a New York City apartment. In 2009, President Barack Obama signed an executive order to close the Guantanamo Bay prison camp within a year. This facility remained in operation as lawmakers blocked efforts to transfer terror suspects to the United States. President Donald Trump later issued an order to keep the jail open and allow the Pentagon to bring new prisoners there. In 2012, longtime Penn State coach Joe Paterno, who'd won more games than anyone in major college football, but was fired amid a child sex abuse scandal that scarred his reputation, died at age 85. In 2013, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's hardline block fared worse than expected in a parliamentary election forcing Netanyahu to negotiate a broad coalition deal. We have a column here, a vice column about relationships, and this one is Deciphering Texts Can Get Frustrating. I recently got a text from a female client following a first date on a Friday night. According to her, the date went well. They got along, and it even ended with a kiss. The following day around noon, she sent him a text thanking him for a wonderful evening. He replied by saying, hey, anytime. I enjoyed it too. Looking forward to seeing you again. She reacted to the message with a heart, as in used one of the iPhone reaction buttons. Sounds like everything is going smoothly, right? Well, two days later, they hadn't communicated again, which had her worried. Do I need to text him again? My client asked. My guy friends tell me to text him. My girlfriends tell me to wait for him to text. If he wants it bad enough, he will say something. I answered, he's a smart man. He knows to ask you out again. Let it lie. It's only been two days. When she asked how long she should be waiting for a text from him, I told her truthfully, I don't have an answer to that. Just live your life this week. He knows you like him. After a successful first date, it's understandable that you're eager to keep chatting with your match and meet again. Excited to find out how strong the connection is. But it's important to remember that people have busy lives, work, family, friends, pets, social plans. In this case, it was also the weekend. This guy may 100% intend to ask her out on a second date. In fact, he said as much by messaging that he's looking forward to seeing her again, which he probably wouldn't have said if it weren't true. 
but in his own time. No matter how much we want instant gratification, that not everyone operates on the same timeline, and if she is that interested, she can certainly ask him out if she likes. Texting has completely changed how people communicate, and this applies to dating as well. Take a look around the internet, and you'll find there is no shortage of people overanalyzing what a certain emoji means, nitpicking how long it took someone to respond, or dissecting punctuation marks. Seriously. I found that people have different texting styles, so none of these things may actually be indicative of whether there's a connection. Tone and personality can also often get lost in translation over text, so always try to reread your messages and see if anything can be misinterpreted. Likewise, if someone sends you a note that seems off, maybe ask them to clarify what they mean. It can't hurt to clear things up by saying, I can't tell what you mean. Whether you're communicating over text, by phone call, or face-to-face, it often comes down to this. If someone says they're looking forward to seeing you again, or, alternatively, that they think you should go your separate ways, you have to believe them. Sure, things come up. Sometimes people lie in a misguided effort to protect your feelings, but in the long run, there's no point in driving yourself nuts over someone if they don't reciprocate the same effort that you're investing in. That column was by Erica Etten, who is the founder of A Little Nudge, where she helps others navigate the often intimidating world of online dating. And then we have a few entertainment briefs. Usher says Super Bowl show must be perfect. Usher's Super Bowl performance has to be perfect. The 45-year-old star is set to perform the Super Bowl halftime show at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas on February 11th, and he is determined to deliver a memorable performance for his fans. The chart-topping star told Vogue, It has to be perfect. I've been doing this for 30 years. I want people who have been a part of that journey to feel like it's a celebration for everybody, for all of us, from the beginning up until this point. Usher also revealed that he wants fans to feel hopeful after watching his performance. He shared, People will tune in for a football game, but I hope when they look at that halftime performance, I'm hoping they walk away with something that's healing them, something that makes them feel hopeful, and not just look at the past, but have hope for the future and have hope for a different type of future than we're looking at right now. And also, Sharon Stone ridiculed for her own Barbie film pitch. Sharon Stone was laughed at by studio executives when she pitched a Barbie movie in the 1990s. The basic instinct actress recalled how film chiefs poured scorn on her idea for a film about the iconic toy doll that is grateful for the changes that have happened in Hollywood that led to Margot Robbie's hugely successful blockbuster last year. Commenting on an Instagram post showing Barbie star America Ferreira's speech at the Critics' Choice Awards last weekend, Stone wrote, I was laughed out of the studio when I came with the Barbie idea in the 90s with the support of the head of Barbie. How far we've come. Thanks, you ladies, for your courage and endurance. Stone, 65, is not the only actress who has seen a Barbie movie fail to materialize, as Anne Hathaway had held initial talks with both Sony and Mattel about starring as the doll in a picture. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Daily Nonpareil. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.